Hello everyone, welcome back to The Restaurant Innovator, a podcast from the editors of FSR Magazine. Each episode features insightful conversations with trailblazing restaurateurs who are leading the charge in creating new and memorable experiences and offers listeners a behind the scenes look at what it takes to stay ahead of the curve in this ever evolving industry. I'm your host and FSR editor, Callie Evergreen, joined by my colleague and co-host, Sam Danley, associate editor. With that, I am excited to introduce you to our special guest on today's episode, Alex Smith, founder and president of Atlas Restaurant Group based in Baltimore, which has more than 30 restaurants, bars, and entertainment concepts under its umbrella, ranging from fine dining Japanese restaurants to Italian chop houses, authentic Greek fair eateries, and more. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start us off by introducing yourself and walking us through your background? Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so uh, I started uh, right out of college uh, in a Haagen-Dazs ice cream shop. So um, I started uh, you know, right out of school, scooping ice cream, learning how to run my own small franchise uh, right here in Baltimore. In fact, I still own the same ice cream store to this day. So that was in 2007 and, um, you know, still love going down there and, uh, and working every once in a while. And it's a, it's a great small business and a great place. I, I would encourage anybody that wants to get into the restaurant business. It's a great place to start as a basic franchise. Um, because you know, you learn how to do inventory and, and pay your bills and, uh, run basic accounting and hiring and firing. And it's a, uh, it's a wonderful first business to get experience in. And then after that, I, I got involved in more of a deli diner. That was like my next step up in, in the food scene. And and then um, a few years after that, went into fine dining. So, you know, I, you could say that my career has evolved and grown over time. And and, and now we have many different concepts in, in multiple states. And uh, we're, we're very much a, a large uh, a restaurant organization, you can say now. So but I feel like the foundation all started with that ice cream shop. And uh, you were also a professional lacrosse player and I think won a gold medal with Team USA. Can we just touch on that for a brief moment? Yeah, that's, that's, a, fun, that's a fun fact. Yeah. Yeah, so fun fact was I was a, I was a pro, pro lacrosse player for six years and I did win a, a gold medal with Team USA. Um, and um, actually why I stopped playing is I had started my fine dining concept and, um, it was 2012 and, um, you know, the training for USA had started up again and they wanted me to leave for a month and go train. And I said, uh, you know, coach, this is, uh, this is not something that I can do while running a fine dining restaurant. It was a seven day a week job. And, um, and that kind of ended my lacrosse career. So that, um, I ended up choosing restaurants over lacrosse. Do you think that that like sports background has influenced your leadership style at all? Yeah. You know, I think that the, you know, I I don't know how much you know about lacrosse, but I I truly believe that um, lacrosse is in a lot of ways like a restaurant. Uh, You could say the same about football or any other, uh, most other team oriented sports. And that is you're not going to find necessarily the, the, the one player that can play every position. Uh, everybody has their specialties. Um, and just, you know, from a management perspective, you have a wine sommelier. You may have somebody that's better with guest hospitality. Uh, you may have somebody that has attention to detail and is great with operations. Um, and just like any lacrosse team, it's about putting together the best players to 
to really make the best team. And I think that's what my the appeal was in the restaurant business was to be able to do that, to assemble my team. And you're constantly moving players around to different positions. And uh, some players are improving in certain positions. Some aren't and can do a, another job really well. And so it's, it's about putting the best team forward uh, every night when you go into service. Hmm. And so I know you mentioned that it was kind of your, your grandfather's success with this, you know, Baltimore's H&S Bakery that also inspired you to pursue the, the career in hospitality. And so what did that initial deli look like and how did that evolve into your portfolio today? Sure. Uh, you know, my grandfather was a, you know, a Greek immigrant started H&S Bakery, uh, one shop bakery that grew to one of the largest commercial bakers in the United States. And my grandfather's mentality on business was relentless hard work beats all. And so, you know, it's interesting when I first got in the business, he and I used to spend almost every day together and it was never enough hours you were putting in the day and you were never working hard enough. And, and that is the restaurant business. I mean, you really have to get in there and grind it out. You have to open the door, you have to do the work, you have to close the doors. And so I understood that, you know, very young in my career. And, you know, I, I obviously had an affinity for Greek cuisine and uh, I am half Greek, you know, um, being that my grandfather was from Hios and my grandmother was from Samos. And so um, I really wanted to do an upscale Greek restaurant. And, you know, what's interesting is in, in the deli that I had, you know, you have, uh, you know, the heroes and you have like, uh, Spanakopita and some of the other things that you would see in like a Greek diner. You know, we were making baklava and things like that. But I really wanted to do something upscale. I wanted to do something like Milos or Kalari or Avra in New York. Kind of that very upscale Estetorio seafood restaurant. And so that's what I that's what we decided to do with Uzo Bay. So cool. And uh, you know, speaking of tying together your, you know, lacrosse playing and the, the team aspect you were mentioning before, how it kind of prepared you. How did you go about forming your your team and attracting the right kind of staff members as you were building and, and scaling? Yeah, great question. You know, so one of the things I realized is, is that there was a lot of talented um, people in Baltimore. And so I had built a lot of relationships over the years with many different people in the industry. And I think as soon as we started opening properties, we, we really did a great job of cultivating a lot of local talent. Um, but I was also smart enough to realize that there was a lot of people that were needed in our organization that we needed to really bring in people with national experience. Um, and we started to do that. And so, um, you know, the gentleman who's our corporate chef now, Aaron Taylor, you know, he came from the one group. He was their corporate chef for North America. You know, Roy Kellen, uh, he was with SBE Group. So what we did was we started to branch out to some of these successful restaurant groups around the country and really recruit a lot of good national talent to come in and to the city of Baltimore and develop concepts and help build our organization. Um, and we've been really fortunate that uh, people have taken a chance on Baltimore. They love it when they get here. It's a great, uh, you know, emerging city in, in, in the East Coast. And so it's been, a, it's been about cultivating local talent, but also recruiting nationally as well. And, you know, you talked about how your, your first venture into the full service fine dining world was inspired by like your family roots. 
But since then, it's now become this like expanding roster of concepts and cuisines, everything from Italian and Japanese to French and American. I'm curious about the creative process there. Like, how do you go about identifying new cuisines or new concepts? Where do you go for inspiration? Sure. Well, one of the reasons we're developing so many concepts um, in Baltimore is for the benefit of the city. Uh, Baltimore gets overlooked a lot nationally by, um, you know, national, I would say, restaurant groups and and regional restaurateurs. Um, It's really not on a lot of people's radars. You know, a lot of growing restaurant companies nationally are looking for the Charlottes and the Nashvilles and the Austins and the Dallas. And, and that's great. And those are great markets. Um, and we're, in, you know, a great market, Houston. And, but, you know, Baltimore is not really on a lot of people's radar. So one of the things we did was we were like, we want to reinvest in our city. And to do that and to be able to create traction and to create bandwidth, you need to open multiple different concepts because Baltimore is not a city that's big enough to have two of the same locations within the city. So one of the reasons we started branching out conceptually with French and and Japanese and, you know, Mediterranean and whatever it was, and there's a lot of them, uh, was to basically create really cool experiences for the people of Baltimore that they wouldn't normally be able to get unless they were traveling to New York or Las Vegas or LA or Chicago. And so we've, we've developed kind of these concepts in the city for the benefit of kind of the people that live in the area and also to put Baltimore on the map as a culinary destination. Now, when we have people coming into our city, they're like, Oh, wow, I can't believe this is in Baltimore. We hear it all the time. And, and that makes us feel good. And we're, so we're trying to, you know, do our part to evolve the local dining scene. But I would say that, you know, when we develop a concept, uh, what do you do when you develop a concept? You look at the very best people in the world that are doing it. So, you know, I'll just give you for an example. But before we opened our French concept, we we went over to Paris and we went to 30 or 40 different restaurants in a week's period and got ideas and tasted food and tasted wine and, you know, cultivated a great French wine list and, and menu by going and doing research and development. And, you know, we're building a steakhouse right now. And we went to Chicago and New York and looked at some of the traditional great steakhouses of the United States and, you know, places that have been around longer than I've been alive and maybe even longer than uh, some of our parents and grandparents have been alive. So that, you know, you go around and you look at what people have done right and, and you get experience and you look at their wine list, you look at their menus and you look at the little details that uh, create a unique experience and you try and emulate that in your market by putting your own spin on it. That uh, that trip eating and drinking your way through Paris sounds like a dream yeah, vacation. You're on the next trip. Yeah, come with us. What are what are some of the challenges that come with owning such a wide variety of unique concepts? And what are some of the ways you've like navigated and worked through those challenges? Yeah. So the the, the biggest challenge with owning so many different concepts is procurement. The procurement process. You know, we have thousands of different ingredients and, and, and we're very culinary driven company. So we allow chefs to have tremendous bandwidth to build their programs. Right. And so, you know, one of the issues we have is, is that it's not all the same spice. It's not all the same proteins all the time. And so, you know, we, we do what we can. It's obviously not all the same plates. I mean, the, the, we're getting handmade um, ceramics for our Japanese and, and uh, Mexican restaurant. And, you know, we're getting Bauscher at Uzo Bay. So like 
not even you know, the small words that we're buying are the same. They're very unique to concept. And so that's, that's certainly a disadvantage when it comes to buying power and procurement. Um, what we do try and do is we do try and buy proteins together. When we're buying lobster, we buy lobster. When we're buying steak, we buy steak. And um, so we do try and group buying power together like that. We have tremendous you know, purchasing power with things like credit card fees and, you know, let's say to go packages. And so there, there, there is some bandwidth there that we have, but I would say that the, the, the hardest thing to do is, 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 is our procurement department and they do a great job, but putting so many ingredients together um, and so many SOPs, basic operating, um, you know, the operating procedure is certainly different in some of our more casual places than it is in the fine dining places. So we try and streamline whatever we can that works. And then obviously there's certain programs that are tailored specifically. I'm curious too, just kind of going, going backwards a little bit, you know, how you really scaled from that, you know, one location to now you're, you're at 30 plus, like, what did that process look like? You know, obviously you, you had to have, you know, investors and, you know, like you already mentioned, building up this team of experts who had national experience. But, you know, did you did you envision having over 30 concepts someday when you were working in that deli? <laughs> I never envisioned uh, having 30 concepts now. Um, and we're building more. So, you know, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. What I, what I can say is, is I think that we had a, great, a, a few great opportunities very, very early on on second generation properties where there was a high level of a dollar of investment um, that failed. Um, and I can give you a, a couple for instances. You know, the Four Seasons properties, uh, there was a celebrity chef in there. He ended up vacating. Um, he wasn't doing very well. As some of these celebrity chefs come into certain markets, um, they're not as well received in, in local as local operators. Um, and it was one of those situations. And when, when that person vacated, you know, we picked up three stores right away. And instead of spending $10 million, let's say, in capital, you spend a few million dollars because the infrastructure is there. Um, and it's a risk to do that because sometimes second generation stores don't work. But because of our bandwidth in the market, they've worked very well. Um, and then we had a similar situation. Uh, another local investor built another couple of restaurants. He left. They sat vacant for a year or two. We came in. We put our spin on it. So um, as far as growth, we've we've been very fortunate to invest in some second generation stores, which we've been able to repurpose with limited capital that have turned out to be a success. Um, and we've ran with that success and and grown on it. You know, obviously, the, the, the capital really comes into play when you're building new builds from scratch and, and brand new projects. And now that we have some capital coming in, we're doing that. But our model has really been an organic growth model. You know, we're doing, you know, three, four units a year. We're investing in our own cash flow. And, and that's kind of been our model going forward. And, you know, the majority of these concepts are independent restaurants, uh, but a handful have multiple locations. Chop Tank has two in Maryland. Lock Bar has expanded into multiple states. How do you determine which concepts have the potential to scale or which concepts will resonate in a new market for you? What's kind of the thought process there? Yeah. So, you know, first, you know, in Maryland, we've never closed a property. Everything we have in Maryland is is open and, and thriving. And what we've done is take on, taken our more successful concepts in Maryland and tried to roll them out to other states. 
there's certain concepts that work well just for Maryland that we, we tried to roll out to another state and didn't work as well, and we will not roll those out anymore. But Lock Bar is one that's worked really well for us, and uh, we're opening our fourth Lock Bar uh, in Philadelphia later this summer. Chop Tank's one that's worked really well. We have, we have two in Maryland, but two different cities, and they've done tremendous. And, you know, our Italian Chop House concept, Marmo, uh, which we have a Tagliata here in Baltimore, has done really well as well. So, we're, And we're opening our second Izumi, which is our Japanese concept in River Oaks in Houston. So we're using Baltimore as really a test ground to see what works, what's, what's, what's a national concept, what's something that we can build on. Um, and then we're taking the successful ones that we feel like are repeatable, and we're rolling them out in other markets. Speaking of, you know, new markets, what are some of the lessons and insights you've gained from entering new territories outside of Baltimore, like Texas and Florida? Yeah, look, it's tough. When you are a new fish in a new market, it's extremely difficult. And those properties require a lot of attention. In fact, we really don't even like going to markets unless we're opening multiple properties. Um, I just feel like just gives you bandwidth with hiring and management and allows you to create impact in the marketplace. It, to do a one-off is very difficult. So I have the utmost respect for all the restaurant guys in the mid-market and upper market that have expanded their groups across the country. Good for you. That's extremely difficult. To be consistent and to put out a great product is tough. And, um, you know, and so we're, we're going through that process now. And we've got some successful properties in Houston and, and South Florida and now D.C. And so we're, 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 we're doing that game now and really excited because it, it, it really – Get, you get to prove your success on the road, in other words. And it, it's it's like playing a home game versus an away game, right? Home game is an advantage, but when you're away, you got to be really buttoned up. I love it. Back to the, the sports metaphor for yeah. business. It comes in handy. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of, you know, growing into new markets, what does sustainable growth look like for Atlas and your concepts? I know that... Last year, you generated more than $130 million in revenue and served 3 million guests, and you expect to double your revenue this year. So, you know, what's your growth plan and, and how will you get there? Yeah, so once again, it's just an organic growth model. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching a few hundred million in sales, and it's a huge milestone for our organization. Um, but, but once again, we're doing three, four units a year. Um, and we're just, we're just inching along and, you know, where do I see us in five or 10 years and no more than three, four units a year. And the reason is, is you really can't commit to more than that and have them done right. Anybody in our business that tells you I'll open 15, 20 locations in a year, um, they'll close half of them. And so you know, we want to make sure the ones we do are right, that they have the right teams. Uh, we're not trying to you know, be this giant company overnight. It's going to be an organic process, slower growth. And hopefully in 10, 15, 20 years, we can be as big as a Hillstone or a Let Us Entertain You. But it's not something that just happens. It's going to take a lot of hard work and really, really great people that want to be involved in our team and continue to grow the business with us. You know, it, it, it seems like there's this consensus across the full service fine dining industry in particular that 
business as usual just like doesn't quite cut it anymore, especially coming out of the pandemic. I'm curious, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing in-person dining or maybe the biggest opportunities to like evolve this category for the future? Yeah, so we've we've I think we've been ahead of the game for that even before the pandemic. I will tell you that um, you know, just last year, um, our budget for entertainment was three million. We work with hundreds of local artists and not only in Maryland, but the other markets we're in. I feel like dining's evolved. It's not just good enough to put out a great product anymore and provide good service. You know, fine dining and, and also just, you know, dining out in general has become an entertainment business. And it's about the entire show. It's about the opening scene, uh, the, the the main act, and, and then there's a closing. And you have to hit all of them. And so uh, we feel like entertainment is just such a huge part of that. Uh, whether it's acoustic guitar or it's jazz or it's a DJ or it's, um, you know, the particular lighting and the scene that's created, you know, dining has become entertainment. And that's something that even in our time, as things progress, I always feel that, you know, people in general, are, there's a need to go out and a need to be entertained. And so, look, if, if you can if you can entertain your guests and provide something unique in that category and provide great food and service, I think you're ahead of the game. But that's where I see things headed. Hmm. And in order to entertain guests, obviously, you have to have a very engaged staff. I know that Atlas was able to retain, you know, it's 2000 employees across its 30 locations during the pandemic, while other restaurants were short staffed, struggling to find folks. And I know in a prior article for FSR, you attributed that retention to the solid foundation you've built with your staff and mentioned, you know, creating a full disclosure organization. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, we, we just, for a big company, I would say we're a big little company. Um, my brother and I are in every single property almost every week. You know, obviously our out-of-market properties are slightly different, but as far as Maryland, we hit 24 of them almost every week. And we're on a first-name basis with most of our staff members because we worked the properties from the ground up when they were developing years ago. And so, you know, to this day, I have, you know, line cooks, food runners, servers that say, hey, can I come by your office? You know, I have a concern or I have a suggestion. And so, you know, when you have somebody that's in your organization that has the, you know, confidence to walk in your office and say, hey, I think we could be doing something better here. And here's where I think we're, we're screwing up. And you have a head of a company that has 2000 employees that's receptive to that. And not only that going to follow up and with that employee and, and that, and that particular business, I think that's special. And so, you know, we are a big corporation, but we're not. And so it's, it's, that's why I think we were able to retain the people that we did and that and growth. I mean, people in our organization have room to grow. I mean, we have food runners that have become servers who have become AGMs, who have become GMs, who have now become DOs uh, running multiple stores for us. So people see growth. Um, and not only that, but they feel like, you know, we operate with transparency and full disclosure. And, you know, I, I think that's key in our organization when you have so many employees that there's a face with, with the leadership of the company and that employees feel like there's an open door. And you guys were one of the like first hospitality businesses in Maryland to do a 15 
dollar minimum wage. Is yeah, that so right? We we right after the pandemic, we came. We just decided that we're doing fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Uh, we do have a tip credit, but we guarantee the fifteen. So for whatever reason, if somebody made thirteen or fourteen with tips, like they're coming up at fifteen no matter what. And um, you know, it cost us over a million dollars a year to do that, but we just felt like it was the right thing to do. And you know, we'll continue to increase that over time. You know, the without the employees, the business does not work. It's their company. They're driving it. You know, they're interfacing with our guests. So we have to do what we can to make sure that they're taken care of. And, you know, I think that our benefits package is one of the best in the business. Hmm. Are there any examples that come to mind of a time when, you know, you mentioned employees, you have that open door policy, they can come in, make suggestions. Can you think of a time when an employee or staff member, server, manager, whoever came up with an idea and then you ended up implementing it? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the $15 an hour minimum wage was was part of it as well. I mean, I think people during the pandemic when prices kind of spiked, you know, there was there was definitely a, you know, a number of employees that came and said, hey, listen, you know, I have more bills. I have, you know, my groceries are more expensive. And we really souped to nuts, looked at it and not only gave all of our guys, you know, a couple of dollar an hour increase from back of house to hostesses to front of house, but decided to put a minimum into play. And I think that's something that we were really receptive with that we experienced with employees after the pandemic is just the cost of everything just went through the roof. And we wanted to make sure that we continued to, to grow our wages along with, you know, what was going on in the market. That's one example, just right off the top of my, my head. Yeah, I know too that you provide, you know, coaching development opportunities like you mentioned yeah. for advancing employees. Do you use any um like third-party, you know, development or or coaching or is it in-house? No, so no, it's it's so we do do some development and coaching in-house, but what I will say is is that we do have specific employees that come to us and say, "Hey, I want to be a master som. Can you cover our classes for that. Sure. Absolutely. I have an accountant uh, who's a junior accountant uh, who's right down the hall from me right now, and she's doing a CPA course to, to get her CPA. You know, we're going we're gonna to take care of her coaching for that. So it's, it's not a specific uh, field. It's a, on, a, on a needed basis, but, you know, we've provided leadership coaching. We've provided coursework. We've provided uh, certifications for sommeliers and, and safe serve and things of that nature. And Really, we do it on a need basis, but we want to see employees that, uh, you know, if they're engaged and they want to grow and they want to learn and they want to take their career to the next step, I'm happy to invest in, in that person and, and their career. Mm, I love it. I also, you know, have heard that you're one of the youngest restaurant group leaders in the U.S. at, is it 39? Don't. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'll be 39 in a month. I'm 38. Yeah, I'm 38 years old. Happy birthday. Uh, what advice would you give to other young leaders coming up in the restaurant industry, you know, looking to either start their own restaurant concept one day or to join uh, an existing one? Yeah. So the advice I would give, and I give this a lot is if, if you want to own a restaurant, if you want to be there every day, running the restaurant, working it yourself, managing payroll, managing the kitchen, opening the doors, closing the doors, then I would tell you, go for it. 
if you want to own a restaurant because you want to invest in a restaurant and you just want to say you own the restaurant, I would advise you probably to stay out of the restaurant business. And I'm sure you guys have heard that before, but yep. you know, the, the most successful places that my friends who are involved in the restaurant business, they're, they're into it. They're not, they're not third party operators. They're, they're primary operators. It's a family run business and they do great. And, um, but if you're an absentee owner, and you're doing this to, to manage from afar or, or be involved, you know, one step in the door, one step out, then don't do it. You got to be all in. That's my advice. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's in store for the future. What's top of mind for you right now? What are we looking at in the near term? You know, what's next for uh, Atlas Restaurant Group here? So we're, we're opening a lock bar in Philly this summer. We're really excited about that. Uh, we'll be open uh, in mid-September. Um, and then our steakhouse and cocktail bar, um, the Ruxton and Order of the Ace, will open in November in Baltimore. So we're very excited. And then that'll be, that'll, that's it for this year. Azumi will open probably uh, right after the new year in Houston, Texas. So that, that's going to be a great addition for uh, Houstonians. And we're really excited about that. Um, and then, uh, you know, next year we have a few projects and that haven't been announced yet. And like I said, it's, it's, it's not one major thing and, and, and one major acquisition or just all of a sudden doubling. It's just that slow growth and just one at a time. And, you know, we're, we're, we look at locations all the time and we look at concepts all the time and, uh, if it fits, we'll do it. Hmm. And I know a lot of, like you said, restaurant group owners say, oh, we're going to open 15. And, and you kind of mentioned already where you're not growing too quickly. You're, you're growing at that sustainable pace, you know, four-ish units, five per year. Would you ever consider, you know, franchising at some point or, you know, what's, what's kind of your formula for growth here? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly kind of um, what I was saying is just that, you know, three to five units a year, organic growth, expanding with our own capital. You know, if if we ever one day, um, you know, did a deal, it would be probably a larger acquisition of of another mid-market company. But, you know, I don't, I don't think we're there at this time with the current uh, way that rates in the market are, are, are right now. But if we if we did one big deal, that's what it would be. But that would be down the road. Got it. Got it. Returning to kind of a, a culinary standpoint. I know you mentioned you let your chefs have a lot of creative freedom. You know, what are maybe some examples from a few of your brands of that culinary innovation side? Like some of your favorite dishes from each concept. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Well, look, I, I just have, you know, I have chefs that fit into particular units that have their own particular dish that they just love. Um, you know, our chef at Parlor Victoria, um, you know, which is our menus very similar to Lock Bar. And we have our staples that we, we put out there. And he says, listen, you know, I have a shrimp and grits that I used to do, you know, that I learned from my grandmother, you know. And I would love to have that on the menu. And also my gumbo, you know, Alex, you got to taste my gumbo. And he was right. They're awesome. So I was like, chef, go for it. You know what I mean? You do your thing. So it's, you know, we, what we do is when we run a program, you know, like let's say it's a lock bar, 
we try and do 75, 80% kind of our staples that are the brand identity. And then we take 20% and we allow that chef to be creative and also do a lot of local product. For instance, like in our South Florida lock bar, you know, we have things like conch ceviche and things that you would, you know, find down there, snapper and things of this nature that you would find fresh in South Florida. Um, in Houston, we do, you know, a gumbo and we do a, you know, via Cajun shrimp and we do some of the other stuff that you would see in Houston. Um, we used to do a crawfish boil, right? And so, you know, we try and tailor it to different markets. I guess in Philly, we'll do a cheesesteak. No, probably not. But, you know, the, the thing is, we like to have chefs to have creativity and also to have, you know, local market influence as well. I love it. Well, we are running out of time here, but was there anything else, Alex, you wanted to make sure to get to we didn't cover already or anything else top of mind? It was great. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. And then if our listeners want to learn more about Atlas or, you know, find a way to contact you, what's the best way to do so? You know, website, email address? Yeah, email or they can just email the website um, and it'll get it'll come to me immediately. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alex. Thank you, guys. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And thank you to all of our listeners out there. Stay tuned for more.